This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Good morning. The banking inquiry has concluded that a wide range of actors, including bankers, regulators, politicians and international institutions, each contributed to the financial collapse. But what part was played by the media? Did the media simply reflect a society caught up in a property bubble or was it complicit in misleading the public due to groupthink and incompetence? And given its failure to call the bubble, can we trust the media today? In studio, Dr Julian Marcille is a lecturer from UCD, author of the book Media Coverage of the European Economic Crisis, The Case of Ireland, and he's a columnist. Dan O'Brien is a columnist with independent newspapers and chief economist at the Institute of International and European Affairs. And Eamon Delaney is executive director of the Hibernia Forum, and he is also a columnist and author. Um, Julian Marcille, I'll start with you because you laid out quite a coherent case against the media at the banking inquiry. Will you give us the the elevator pitch on how yeah. it's our fault? <laughs> well, it's it's against a certain type of media. I mean, uh, the, the the case I make is that the media reflects the interests of uh, its owners, and that's very very easy to understand for other media. We don't have a problem saying that the UCD student paper reflects the interests of the students by and large, uh, or a union paper reflects the union interests. It's, it's kind of uh, obvious. But when we come to corporate media or state-owned media, you say, well, that reflects the uh, interests of the state, the government, or the corporate world. People sometimes say, oh, no, you're a conspiracy theorist or something. And again, it doesn't mean that because it reflects the interests and the views of the corporate world, it's wrong. It can be right. It's, it's just a matter of saying it's a certain interest and it's a narrow range of interest that we see in the media. So in relation to the housing bubble and the banking inquiry, uh, the media was very uh, much uh, supporting the housing bubble. There were some voices of dissent, but we can name them uh, very quickly because there's probably maybe one or two people. Uh, David McWilliams is the, the most prominent one. But everybody else was either saying there's no problem, there's going to be a soft landing, or what happens often is also that they wouldn't talk about it. Uh, so if you don't talk about a big problem, a big bubble that's uh, growing and growing, that's a kind of a passive uh, support. So sometimes the media works more in that way. People don't know there's something important, so they keep buying houses, and then there's a problem, and then everybody says, oh, we never saw it. Whereas if you looked just across the sea, The Economist magazine had warned about the bubble in 2003, and not just a vague warning, a very precise warning saying house prices are overvalued by 40%, I think, and there were many housing bubbles at that time in the world, so Ireland was not unique in that respect. Are you saying that journalists were consciously bending to the will of what they thought their corporate bosses wanted? Or was it just something far more subtle um, in in their neglect of the topic? Sometimes there were, uh, at the banking inquiry again, we know that the property uh, industry called the Irish Times, for example, and said, listen, uh, you better have good coverage because, uh, you know, we're not going to sponsor, we're not going to advertise with you. So there were a few explicit uh, threats like that. But mostly, uh, I don't think journalists every day were like, okay, I cannot talk about the housing bubble. I think the media is like any institution. You and people who work in the media mostly internalize the rules 
and they come not to think about them so much. It's such a fast-paced work anyway, and you don't have the time sometimes to think about that. It's the same thing for any institution, whether it's the military or academia. So Dan O'Brien, mm. the, the media internalized um, the problem and therefore were incapable of seeing it clearly. Well, can I come back to the first? Let, let, yes. There's the specific issue of the bubble <clears throat> and the property thing, and then there's the broader charge that Julian makes about um, media organisations doing their corporate owners' bidding. Um, and Julian says that media people do what corporate and government interests want. Now, I, I would really suggest to Julian that he get out a bit more because if you talk to politicians, most politicians hate the media, particularly government politicians. They say the media doesn't report their achievements. It only looks at trivial things. It looks at their fights. It, it tries to catch them out all the time. The notion that the media... Uh, is supportive of the government. Like politicians just would laugh at that proposition. That's, 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 that's politicians. Corporate, like the number of times I've spoken to people in business who believe the media are full of left-wing, anti-business people. They think the media is anti, uh, anti-profit, anti-business. Uh, you know, again, they would just laugh at the notion that the media is dominated by pro-business cheerleaders. So, you know, Different people have different perspectives. Julian, from his perspective, believes that, you know, the media is all dominated and just basically does big business and government's bidding. I just think that's a fantasy. Okay, so let's move on to to, to the bubble. Um, I have two hats. I have one as an economist and one as, as, as somebody who contributes to the media. As an economist, I think we're the people who deserve blame for missing out on the bubble, okay? Uh, journalists are generalists, they, they can't be experts in everything, and that's one of the great difficulties of, of media. If the majority of the economics community either thought there wasn't a bubble or, as Julian said, didn't raise it enough, and I was guilty of that. I didn't, wasn't living here, so okay, you know, but still I should have said more in hindsight uh, about the risks. Um, and that the failing of the economics profession when the average journalist was looking at what was going on and saying, well, look, most economists who know more about this stuff than I do say there's not a problem or there's a, the risk is relatively low, well, you know, then what are we going to write every day? Somebody's talking about a risk. Are we going to write put this on the front page every day? No. So I, I, in my view, there were some failings in the media around the bubble and there are things that could be changed. But was the media... Did, did the media contribute in any big way to the inflating of the bubble? No. It was the banks. Well, what it was about economists, property failings. journalism specifically? I mean, you know, like that was, first of all, you had the revenues that were coming from property advertising, which were hugely significant. Um, Julian pointed out that both the uh, INM and the Irish Times actually bought property websites. And then you had the property porn, all those wonderful articles. You know, no house ever had a flaw in it. Yeah. The, well, the like, lovely advertorials. Like that, you know. that, the, the notion that a journalist ceases, becomes a property editor of a newspaper and then puts aside the normal journalistic rigor and scrutiny and then writes, as you say, only positive stuff. You know, personally, I, I, I don't think that's the way to go. And, you know, that still happens. Okay, I don't, you know, I don't make decisions about who, how, mm. how newspapers run. But certainly, I don't think that's a good thing. But, you know, in, in terms of newspapers taking adverts for the sale of houses. Now, the last time I looked, selling a house was legal. If somebody comes to you and says, I will pay to advertise to sell a product, why would a, a company that, you know, in an industry that's in big trouble, turn away those revenues? There's nothing wrong with advertising if, if, if businesses want to advertise. Now, this issue of whether advertisers influenced editorial content 
you know, I've read Julian's work very closely. I don't see evidence where he's put that, where there is definite evidence that advertisers actually influenced editorial content. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I don't Mm. know. But I certainly haven't seen any convincing evidence from Julian's work showing that advertisers influenced uh, editorial content. Okay, and I'll come back to Julian on that. But Eamon Delaney, just on the issue of media bias, are we all guilty of confirmation bias? Like Dan was saying, politicians are convinced the media is anti-political and are definitely, you know, anti-government or whatever. Left-wing people will say we're all right-wing shills. Um, You know, do we all read into it what we want to see? or Or do you think there is an objective bias at the heart of things? Well, I think it's true, as Julian says, that the media will reflect its owners who are capitalists and the prevailing political system is reflected by the media. That's just the mainstream. Uh, my problem with the boom is a much wider one than both Dan and Julian have said. I think that their media were not uh, scrutinising enough. We're cheerleaders for a high spending government culture uh, and uh, the, the debt bubble, the private debt bubble, the public debt, the reliance on housing and I wouldn't mind that because, as Dan said, journalists are generalists. So, you know, they can pop up now. I mean, many of the journalists, it's incredible, without any embarrassment, are now denouncing the very things that they celebrated once. But you might say, well, they're just journalists. We expect better from regulators and government people. That is true. And we do. And, and you know, the journalists are people who, you know, the king is dead, long live the king. They just go with whatever way the wind is in many ways. Having said that, it is just galling for many of us, to look at the kind of um, righteousness of much of the media on TV and radio now. We see a lot of it after the bank inquiry. We saw some of it the other night on TV programme. Uh, when, when the media in itself has never stepped forward and said we were, respond, we, we were collusive in this atmosphere. And I found the media sections of the bank inquiry really rather poor. You know, we, we, had, we had these instant uh, sessions, very uh, brief altogether, Journey Kennedy, former editor of the Irish Times, Zane gone out, mentions a Morgan Kelly article. It doesn't even do good service to her. So many of our own journalists who did call out the, the recklessness and spending and that. I mean, I'm one of these nerds who has boxes of newspapers at home from a pre-internet era. And I find now and then great Irish Times editorials and pieces saying something's going wrong here. This is just too risky and too reckless. But, so I just don't think the media has taken enough account of itself now. Would you forgive individuals on the basis that um, journalists were buying houses themselves, you know, well, and, and that they reflect the people? And say even on the high spending thing, you know, people were voting for that. It is a democracy. Oh, totally. I, and you see, it's all kind of connected. And in many ways, we all agree mostly from different directions because, as John said, it's the people. I mean, you know, they voted in 2007 for more of the same with Fianna Fáil. They voted in 2002, bought election with your money. And then sadly, we're starting to see that again. So... So is it the function of media to reflect, well, perhaps not the function, but simply inevitable, that the media will reflect the society in which they live? Or do you see that they should be constantly challenging the consensus and constantly challenging, even if the people are saying this is what they want? I, I, it's, hard, it's hard to say because, I mean, I was one of those who thought that the media was overly negative for some of the more positive aspects of the boom. Um, and I don't mean there would be negative about... Uh, stuff that was going wrong. Just, I, I felt there was a culture of complaint developed. And this this brings a, to another point, this is a point that people like Julian would have to answer, is that that recklessness in terms of spending, a lot of it came from the left, or at least it came from those who wanted more state, 
services, more spending on health and education, more quangos. I mean, as someone, a former minister said to me, every time he turned on the radio in Morning Ireland, it was someone looking for more money. All that money was, was created, all that spending went up because more money was coming in in taxes on a property bubble. So the left are equally... They, they spend the money quite happily, even though it's coming in... So, the Julian, the, like. the problem here is, just going back to that issue of confirmation bias, is that we're each seeing, you know, what we think is a bias in the media from a different perspective. So Dan's but, question about evidence, you know, how much evidence were you actually able to compile on quantity of articles say not challenging the boom or challenging the boom or whatever. Well, before that, yeah. I would say whenever you hear something from Dan O'Brien, you have to remember he has no credibility whatsoever, right? And I'll tell you well, why. I'll tell you why very clearly. From 2002 or something until the bubble burst, he said himself, didn't see that. After that, 2008 until today, he was cheerleader for austerity, which doesn't work. He doesn't understand that. So 15 years of failure right there. So whenever he says something, it has to be taken with a big grain of salt. Now, his other latest accusation that in my work, there's no influence about advertisers. I don't know what he's reading. This is out there in the open. There's good papers uh, interviewing journalists saying we had pressures from the property sector telling us don't do this, don't write that. And that's fine. Have you specific cases of that happening? You know, yeah, yeah, you. Like, do you know specific cases where journalists were explicitly told? Now, I'm yeah. I'm very open to the idea of self censorship and groupthink, but in the case of specific examples, yeah, of course, yeah. there, there, so there's what? a paper. Look, yeah. what, 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 she what she, she asked me the question, right? Oh yeah, oh, sorry. Yeah. So, the, there's a paper published. I think it's from DCU, and they've interviewed journalists, and they said exactly what I just said. The property sector would tell us this and that. Now, the other thing that is important is not the media doesn't work in a way that property ed, uh, people call every journalist and editors call every journalist. Hey, don't do this, don't do that. People know what they have to do. So when the editors came in the banking inquiry and said. I never felt any pressure from my owners. I kind of believe them because they share the same values. They wouldn't be in the position they are if they didn't share the same values. Now, if the editors were really critical people who were thinking for themselves and challenging the establishment, they would lose their job right away. So because they are there, of course they don't feel any pressures from them. They are there as a team. So there's a truth to that. Okay, Um, now what about Dan's point, though, that the overwhelming majority of the economics profession didn't call the bubble. They were there was a large buy into the idea of the soft landing. That's true. So so you can't blame journalists yes, when I can. when they were being told all round them. So fine, you're yeah. quoting one article from the Economist, but I mean even I think the IMF you know, weren't aware of all the risks. So, you know, so what else were journalists to do? It's interesting that I'm seen here and every time I go on the media as the person Mm -hmm. on the panel who doesn't like the media and journalists, but actually I have much more respect for journalists than sometimes what Dan is saying. He's saying that journalists just listen to economists and then they just copied what the economists said. It's not their fault. They're generalists, right? Yeah. As if the journalists should be robots just copying down whatever the economists say. Journalists have to do more and be critical. But they don't. That's the problem. Well, yeah, but that's why. I mean, I respect the profession a bit more when I say they should. I don't say they're just yeah. general. It's not their fault. No, you have an obligation to research. Of course, the economic uh, economics profession is also very pro-establishment. So it's no wonder that they didn't see the housing bubble. Now, Dean Baker, who's one of the best economists in the world, 2002, wrote a very good paper about the U.S. housing bubble, warned about it very clearly, not vague speculations. 
Dean Baker writes papers with Paul Krugman. He's not a backwater economist. But I come now so, to Dan all of that, but just a final point on that. Would you not accept that people did not want to know? They didn't want to hear it. People, were, journalists or people no, in general? Actually, the citizenry. They were caught That's up in not, it themselves. No, because, I mean, I don't know a single person in the country who said, oh, I was really happy to be floating in the housing bubble that would burst and put us in a recession for six years. People don't want that. Uh, that's not true. Maybe property developers want yeah. that, no, not the people. So, not Dan, people. do you want to respond? So to well, yeah, look, I, I don't, look, I don't yeah. feel the need to defend myself, I, you know, whatever. But Maybe look, you can't defend yourself, yeah. then. That's well, why. I, I will, actually, Julian. I, I, worked at, <laughs> I actually worked at The Economist that you, you, talk, you talk so glowingly about from 1998 to 2010. Um, some of the reports. Well, you that, read that you, the, the, you should have read the articles then that warned uh, about the I bubble. I was involved in, in the, 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 the survey of Ireland as it happens that you've cited uh, and you don't seem to quite understand. But the, the, the bottom line is I did warn about risks. I came on TV here. I said in 2006, I said, don't buy a house unless your income is guaranteed. I said, there's a real risk. There's too much debt. I didn't live here. I was asked, I was back and I was asked to go on a primetime show exactly 10 years ago. So I did warn, warn of risks. And in terms of the post-crisis, I've been living here since 2010, uh, I have taken a view that there was a need for fiscal consolidation. Um, the economy is now growing again. It's recovering. Uh, you say austerity doesn't work. I don't put it like austerity works. It doesn't work. Yes. We had no choice in terms of bringing our budget balance back into balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was my view. So that, that's, that's, you know, just whatever in terms of some of the silly so stuff. So what about the journalists and the economists that... Were they just too easy taking experts' opinion? And often the economists coming on shows like this were actually from the banks themselves. The journalists were just lazy and not asking enough questions. And for example, I have a smarter, older brother. And when I first went into journalism, he said to me, the most dangerous times in Irish history has been when everyone agrees. Consensus is the enemy. Yeah. I, I, you know. I, well, I, certainly. You know, there's absolutely a need to scrutinize. But what, what I, you know, I do come back to this point about, uh, you know, the, the difficulty for people in the media, generalist journalists. So if there's something like an outbreak of the Zika virus in, in the U.S., you know, who do journalists depend on? They, they're going to depend on medics. Uh, they're not going to be able to, they can, sure, ask questions of medics, but they don't understand, uh, they don't have access to the data, uh, they don't have access to the testing. Uh, you know, they're not immunologists and virus experts. So, uh, you know, how can they come to, how can they say that, the mm-hmm. you know, the World Health Organization is wrong? So, I, you know, I think that that is a real problem for the media in general, in every country. Eamon, uh, groupthink. Now, I notice this a lot on other issues, you know, not necessarily economic, um, you know, stuff like the liberal agenda and things like that, where a single narrative can be established very, very quickly on a particular issue, mm. be it bugging in GSOC or Magdalene Laundries or whatever. Mm. And it is near impossible to break that narrative once it takes hold, even if you can produce primary evidence. You know, the journalists simply hunt in packs. And that's yeah, the mean, nature of the Good journalism uh, should not do that. It should tease out and interrogate. But it doesn't, does it? Well, it, it does somewhere. It does here in news talk, actually. I'll give you an example. I mean, I listen to a lot of radio. I heard an item on the Glen Network for Chance Drender and LGBT education schools handled by a show yesterday on RTE and it was completely uncritical uninquisitive uh, in my and it, it was almost gushing I'm not saying they should people should oppose this uh, Glenn Network but many parents will be wary about it whatever just just interrogated by contrast this morning 
or today Shane Cullman on this station was much more robust. Like So RTE, I think, still has that ethos. That there is a consensus on an issue. It's generally a left liberal one. They seek consensus. We're a small society. We don't like division. I personally think division creates uh, a better debate and more analysis, a more vig- vigorous thing. And uh, you're right. There are lots of issues on which... You so know, overall, packs. I mean, how, would you grade, how would you even grade... Even the banking bailout. So, so uh, how would you grade... I'm going to, to take a break now, but just how would you grade media performance in general? Well, I... I, I see, this is... It's a bit nebulous. We're, we're having this discussion about the media and the media is not a one single it's many different aspects and I, I agree with a lot of what Dan says especially on the economics issue but I also agree with Julian about the media uncritically reflected uh, it's advertisers but like it's just it's almost it's almost impossible you have to stand back and then we see we're in the blame game of who didn't call out what economists yeah. and we hear a few na- uh, names listed I think too few personally you know Cormac Lucy wrote for me when I was editor at McGill and he from the very beginning in November 2004, he was saying there is a massive bubble. So there were voices. So there were. But Cormac's not someone to blow his own trumpet then, you know. Mm. So there were others and more than just the usual and there were. But I I think, and I think the final thing I just say on this, I don't think we should be necessarily too hard on ourselves as a country because internationally, people were going over the abyss. I mean, look at America, from which we take our lead. I mean, was George Bush, George W, you know, the, the suckers going down or whatever, this financial crisis and Lehman Brothers. So, Everybody was kind of cozying along. I, my, my only thing I'll say, and I'll just leave it on this before you take the break, is I wish, I hope you can learn the lessons for now going forward. And that's when it comes for the overspending. Yeah, and uh, actually, and, and, and after the break, growth. we're going to do two things. We're going to be talking to Guy Ronick, an Israeli journalist, to get a look at that international perspective. And then we're going to talk about the coverage of the bust. We've done the bubble. Was the bust coverage biased too? That's after these. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. So welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about media coverage of the boom and bust. And in studio this morning, Dr. Julianne Mercil, a lecturer from UCD and author of the book Media Coverage of the European Economic Crisis, The Case of Ireland. Dan O'Brien is Chief Economist at the Institute of International and European Affairs. And Eamon Delaney is Executive Director of the Hibernia Forum. And they're all columnists. Now, this isn't all about Ireland, as we were saying before the break. And we're coming now to Guy Ronick. And I met Guy at the Web Summit last year. He's Associate Professor of Strategic Management at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business and he's also an Israeli journalist who founded the media organisation The Marker. Now Guy is interesting because the journalism work that he did in Israel exposed how oligarchies had undue influence on the country. His campaign led to street protests and trust-busting legislation being passed in Parliament that had support, among others, of Stanley Fisher, Vice President of the US Federal Reserve. And what's most interesting is that Guy told me that when he began his work exposing how a tiny number of companies had wide control of business in Israel, the initial pushback came from journalists, his own peers. Good morning, Guy. Um, Can you tell us a bit more about the reaction of the mainstream media to your campaign? Yeah, so as you said, the reaction of the mainstream media was negative uh, for a host of reasons. The first reason is trivial. Some of the media outlets uh, in Israel were owned directly or indirectly by the very same groups that overtook the uh, economy. So the biggest uh, tycoons and the biggest uh, financial institutions were able to exert a lot of influence uh, directly and indirectly on most of the media. 
So that's the first reason that big media that media didn't want to uh, pursue this campaign or join this campaign. And basically, many uh, uh, news outlets actually denied the situation and say we don't have this problem of concentration. It's over. It's overrated. Uh, Israel is a competitive economy and. Uh, and the second reason, of course, is the groupthink in, uh, with uh, uh, journalists. Uh, they, there was this narrative that investigative uh, uh, journalism uh, has to focus on journalism uh, uh, generally in Israel. If you are liberal, if you are progressive, you have to focus only on the Palestinian issue, only on occupation and what they are doing to democracy and talking about uh, money in politics, money influences regulation, or money destroying democracy is not that important. Now, you did have success in Israel, but I was wondering, is that success, do you think, transferable to other countries? You know, that Israel does have a particular foundation, highly educated people, perhaps socially cohesive, brought about by its experience of war, do you think that your kind of journalism would have the same impact in, say, America or Western Europe? So the answer is, unfortunately, that even in Israel, we had a lot of... We waged this campaign for a long time, and we are... Uh, the marker is owned by Haaretz, which is a very uh, old newspaper that is held by a family that is very independent and have, very, have a culture of DNA of independence. And even though uh, we waged this campaign for uh, more than five years, we almost lost. And the reason we won eventually is because in the summer of 2011, we had a very big uh, social protest in Israel that basically was able to signal to politicians that the public is waking up. So politicians decided basically to go for the first time after the concentration, after big business, after this uh, uh, corruption. I'm not sure that if we had not had this social protest, we would have won the battle and carried the day as we, as we did eventually. Now, when I look around, the, after we had this successful uh, campaign in Israel, I started looking more into what's happening in other places around the world, and I was surprised to see that this problem of capture of media by big business you see it in many countries, uh, not only in the developing countries, but also in the developed countries. When I visited Ireland, I heard some perspective on that uh, uh, also. Now, when you say transferable, well, it's very difficult because you have to understand that investigative journalism on money, special interest groups and politics and regulation is basically a public good. The market does not produce enough of it and probably will never produce uh, enough uh, uh, of this uh, product. So then you think about public television, public radio, but usually when you have a problem with the private market, concentration of big business influence, many times it duplicates itself to the newsrooms of the public television and public uh, uh, radio. We see this phenomena all over the world. We see it also in the United uh, States. The question is, where is the countervailing force to big business and big business when it's together with uh, uh, politics? And maybe one of the answers for that is what we see today in the presidential election in the United States, because for the first time, we see a candidate that big media ignored, a candidate that is not backed up by big money, 
And using the internet and grassroots was able to raise more than $100 million from two or three million uh, Americans. And I'm talking, of course, about uh, Bernie, uh, Bernie Sanders, which basically defeats the idea that a politician needs support of big media and big money uh, to become a, a valid uh, candidate. Now, going back to the ownership of the media, so obviously you have, say, traditional media moguls like Rupert Murdoch, but then you've also got new billionaires moving into media ownership, like Jeff Bezos from Amazon buying the Washington Post, Alexander Lebedev, the UK Independent, and here in Ireland, as you know, Dennis O'Brien owns a lot of media. Have you been able to track how that ownership actually trickles down into journalistic behaviour in those organisations? You know, is it fair to assume that journalists working in these organizations are automatically succumbing to the usual things of self-censorship and groupthink? Well, it's very difficult to track those issues because usually what happens is not not what you report and what you write. It's what you don't report and it's what you don't pursue. Now, you, you gave two examples. If we look at the example of uh, Jeff Bezos, Amazon is clearly a huge company, sort of a monopoly in the United States, that deals and will have to deal more and more with regulators in the United States. Now, having Jeff Bezos control one of the most important uh, newspapers, specifically in Washington and the U.S., must have an influence on many journalists, on many Regulators, so you cannot uh, ignore that. And if you say, well, you know, uh, the New York Times will go after Jeff Bezos and, and the Washington Post, and Washington Post will go after the New York Times, usually what we see in many industries when you don't have a lot of competitors, we see sort of a, a detente, a tacit collusion, where basically newsrooms, owners know that it's better not to pursue aggressively their uh, competitors. There is criticism among uh, newspapers, but usually it's very uh, moderate. So this is Jeff Bezos. Now, when you say uh, Lebedev in the UK, this is somehow different because I don't think that he has a lot of business interests that he wants to influence a regulator. And this is a second kind of uh, investor that we see in media in the last uh, two decades, we see the families that uh, the, the journalistic dynasties are selling their companies because of losses, and we see some Russian oligarchs and other oligarchs uh, buying their companies. This is a more of a game of ego and a game of reputation, and oligarch wants to be more accepted in the in the West. Here, the problem is what kind of culture will he instill? It's not a problem of specific conflicts of interest. But the the question is what kind of culture he will instill in the newsroom. And this is, uh, and we have to look at it on an individual basis. Right. Okay. Well, Guy, thanks for joining us this morning. That's really interesting. And um, and I know there's a film in which you're involved that's um, available on the internet at the moment. And we'll put up a link to that this morning. Okay. So I hope to talk to you again. Um, Eamon Delaney, you know, obviously there's a lot of concern in Ireland about media ownership and cross-media ownership. But I've often wondered as well about cross-media employment 
you know, where you have journalists like you and I who are working, say, for News Talk and, you know, maybe writing for The Independent or maybe writing for The Sunday Business Post or writing for The Sunday Times occasionally, that how are journalists supposed to call out each other if they're worried that the paper that they might be criticising or the broadcasting organisation that they might be criticising might be a future employer that they might need? I think that's something just to navigate individually. See, I, I don't... But do people navigate it individually by holding back? By common sense, I think, yeah. But I mean, what, define well, that. Well, I think, look, you know, I would be critical of some journalists who've written for independent newspapers over the years, but I wouldn't do it in a way that was disloyal to the paper. I mean, I actually am one of those people who believes that, you, should, you know, if I worked in a restaurant as a waiter, I wouldn't badmouth the chef. You know, I don't get this kind of phenomenon that we had a few years ago, a certain Sunday paper attacking the own main owner of the paper, the main owner of this radio station as well. I thought it was insane. If I was employing someone, I'd want them to have be, be kind of loyal to the to the owner and to the general ethos. But I do think, and it does happen, that journalists do disagree greatly, even though they work with the same organisation. Patsy McGarry and John Walters used to have great scraps. They were both employed by the Irish Times. I think it's just something you navigate and it's a matter of common sense, you know. Uh, Dan, what about you? On, or sorry, Julian, you want to I, come I think in on that? it's just very interesting what Eamon said. I mean, you said very clearly what I've been saying forever. You said, I'm expecting to be loyal to my owner. I mean, this is very, very, very obedient. I mean... They're I, employing you. I mean, It's uh, very obedient. A real journalist would say... This guy hired me to find out the truth, whatever it well, is. Well, you did that as well. Well, you, you just said I would be expecting that someone would be loyal to me and I'm always loyal to my owner. I mean, this is very, very revealing. People ask me for examples all the time. That's it. There's just one right there. Well, I, I wouldn't expect- unconsciously, you said Yeah, it. and I'll say it again. I do think one well, should be loyal to well, one's again, employer. Well, that, that's, that's, a, that's an ethos of journalism in Ireland. We should be loyal to our employer. What is that? are paid for by What is that? You know, the media This is the best quote since I got to Ireland. And he repeats it. You know, he's very proud of it. Julian, to be fair, maybe to Eamon, I mean, in the last few months, you've written for The Independent, you've Sunday Everybody, Business yeah, Post, yeah. The Daily Mail. So you're writing for everyone. Yeah. So uh, even taking into account the loyalty yeah. to the owner, which you did say, I know. my that, point is that by writing for each one of them, you know, does that mean you can't criticise each of them for but, failures? But, but I do. But I mean, and, uh, may, but, but, I'm, but I'm careful. I don't, you know, yeah, I'm not going to... So you criticise on the things that are not too important, but you no, remain loyal. No, I do loyal. look at things that are important. I mean... But, uh, but that's uh, what you said. You have to remain loyal. No, no I, I'm loyal. I don't believe in attacking the owner of the newspaper. This you don't believe in attacking the owner of the newspaper? Absolutely not. Well, well, I think... Okay, but that's very obedient. You'll get a job well, anywhere I mean, in, in, in journalism. I mean, employed as a diplomat, I wouldn't sit down and start writing diplomat is also, tracts against They're the also minister. parrots. They're also parrots. They talk for the government and but they get I, fired. I, I, they, they get fired if they don't say the government line. Okay, but Julian, I can PR honestly industry, tell you as a person right? and I do have strong principles about many things... Uh, Loyalty is one. Well, well, but I, look, I'm just going to... If I could just finish, there's never been an issue where I was writing for someone or I was avoiding something that I felt never. Right. Uh, uh, because no. you've internalised the, the principles so much that you don't even well, feel the you, principles this is, you see, this attacking... Is like, you're now telling me, this is like psychiatry, like, I'm now internalised. You're going to tell me that I'm subconsciously I don't have to tell you, people myself. hear it very clearly. No, no, well, I mean, well, Julian, if Eamon is saying that he's never had a, a moment where he thought he wanted to criticise someone, but, or th- or but, thing, or but held yeah. back and didn't, out of fear of the consequences. Is that what you're saying, Eamon? Yeah, I've never, yeah. I've never, it's only, never something, you know, see, I may have the same views as um, uh, the owners of the papers and in that way we differ. 
you know, Julian, we do differ. Yeah. And in, in the same way as somebody say you were happy writing for the Irish government for years, yeah, because I shared most of their views and still do exactly. as, as a state. But I've never been stopped. I have been told I can't write about something. Mm. Um, interesting one was a, to do with trade unions in which a paper, let's not say what it was, yes. was friendly to this particular trade union movement. So there you go, that's censorship from the left. Uh, and, and a few other things to do with individuals and libel, but not on any issues. I have to take a quick break. I'll be back straight after these. Dan O'Brien wants to get in on that issue. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. And welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about media bias this morning. And in studio with me is Julian Merciel from UCD, Dan O'Brien from the Institute of European Affairs. International, International and European Affairs. And Eamon Delaney, columnist and executive director of the Hibernia Forum. Dan O'Brien, we're talking about journalists themselves and how they choose what to write and what not to write about. And are they holding back because they fear consequences of their owners or they've internalised the views of their owners and simply agree with them and therefore never have to criticise? Okay, well, let me first of all pick up on on Eamon's point about loyalty to owners. I absolutely profoundly disagree with that. Um, and let me give a, a very clear example. I write for the independent group. Dennis O'Brien, is, as is mm-hmm. well known, is and the, obviously he owns is, this station. This station as well is the major shareholder. I have absolutely zero loyalty to Dennis O'Brien. Let me make that absolutely clear. I don't know the man. I've run into him twice. He's a very powerful man. There are legitimate concerns about the extent of his uh, media ownership. He should be scrutinised and he should expect to be scrutinised. And he is every day. And, and, and perhaps he He's should not. be scrutinised even He's more. Not. Well, actually, first of all, I want to put my cards on the table. I resigned from the Sunday Times mm-hmm. and wrote about it afterwards because mm-hmm. of interference in columns that I wanted to write that were pro-European. Mm-hmm. And as far as I know, I'm the only journalist who has actually resigned from a newspaper in recent times on that specific issue and written about it afterwards. I know there are journalists who feel that they have been forced into leaving certain papers, but we never really find out why, which I think mm-hmm. is a problem. So, Julian, your point on the media ownership and the behaviour of journalists. And yeah. it is tricky for journalists today. Yeah, I mean, I, and again, I, I don't want to mm. sound like I work in an idealistic bubble. I yeah. understand when Eamon says that you have real-world constraints. I mean, if I was a journalist for a paper, I wouldn't write every column talking about all the weaknesses and the things I don't like about my owner because, first of all, I wouldn't even know them. And, you know, you have to be... And a lot of journalists would... You have very, very progressive journalists, for example, who work for Wall Street Journal, a very right-wing um, business paper, and they have to be careful in a way because they have to, I don't know, like for whatever reasons they have. But I think the important thing is to state the principle. Like Dan said, I, I find myself surprised I agree with Dan on this. But, mm. I mean, the principle should be still that you want to have a press, a media that at least has a goal to criticize whatever it is, the establishment, unions or whatever. I mean, otherwise, what are you in the business for? Do you acknowledge that part of the problem is the uh, way employment is structured now in the media, that there are very few people who actually have a job? Most of us are freelancers. I don't have a job, you know, and so we go week to week. But yet in a sunset industry that isn't making money, the argument would be that they simply can't afford to employ staff. It's a very good point. And when you have staff, it's the same for any economic sector. When you don't have a safe, a secure job, 
what do you do? Well, you take less chances and you uh, mm. you play the game and you don't take any risks. I mean, I do the same thing. Otherwise, you'll lose your job. So you're very right. And that's actually a, a standard tactic by employers to weaken uh, employment security so they have more control over their employees. I mean, it might not be as uh, intentional as I'm uh, mm-hmm. saying it, but in the Amen. end... A good yeah. example of this was Peter O'Byrne with the Daily Telegraph. And, what happened there? Well, he, he walked because he said that he was coming under pressures from the owners to write about certain stories. There was a specific business story that he decided to cover, but they were a big advertiser in the paper. Uh, but then he, he made a statement, but I felt his statement was a little bit self-righteous and long-winded. He, he mentioned about the, not properly talking about stag hunting, using the same, the proper terminology. It was kind of typical Daily Telegraph. Mm. But it was interesting, the response by, I think, the Barclay brothers who own Telegraph. He met one at a funeral of, of a, some Tory lord, an interesting exchange where he was rounded upon, because the owner said, do you know what we're in here? We're trying to survive. You've had your career as a political commentator. You've written your books. Peter Oborn, well-known commentator. You know, the rest of us are trying to get on with things. You don't go and piss off a main advertiser. So I could see both both sides. And, mm. and that is the story. It's a sunset industry. I mean, we're talking about a real decline here. 20% cuts coming in the Guardian. So the other field, it's not that, as Julian might think, we have to be show, you know, cover up stories, by, but just you don't go out and uh, gratuitously attack maybe one of your advertisers. I would imagine that was realism. For I think also that, that just Julian. to do it quickly, uh, we talked a lot about the personal, you know, individual journalists, how they react, but it's it goes back to the structure of, of the media. If you have a media uh, who, that relies on advertising money to survive, you will have those problems inevitably. If you have other media structures like alternative media, we talked about social media on the internet, which is funded by readers, for example, then you remove those problems. Mm. So once you have the structure we have, I understand why what Eamon said, you have a certain mm. system to, to yeah, play I, with. And uh, just very quickly, like yeah. just as you say, the media has opened up now. So this this is not as, as relevant a discussion because we have all these other outlets on the social media. Well, I have something I want to put to Dan. Uh, we were discussing John Adams uh, before the show and a uh, quote of his that I like for this context is, the preservation of the means of knowledge among the lowest ranks is of more importance to the public than all the property of all the rich men in the country. I know when there's any topic that I know something about and I'm reading about it in the papers, I see that they've got it completely wrong, either by omission or just facts that they've got wrong. You know, from from your perspective and from your base of knowledge, do you think people are getting correct and fair information in the newspapers about the economy? Oh, that's, a, that's a really wide question. Um, <laughs> I think, well, I, again, you know, I think there's this issue of resources that in a small country, you don't have specialised newspapers. So we don't have a sort of financial times. We don't have a daily business newspaper here that would do more uh, in terms of economic analysis. Uh, not all of the newspapers can afford to have specialist economists, that sort of thing. So that's a really big, big problem. Uh, again, it, you know, it's that issue of resources, explaining, do you have time, do you have uh, do, 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 uh, do media organisations, can they devote uh, the resources to employing people who have uh, the expertise to be able to do that but, and communicate. But specifically it. on the economy, from what little I do know about the economy, I'd see some celebrity economists, you know, raving on the television or writing newspaper articles. And I know they're just wrong about stuff. Like just wrong. 
Uh, so it's not a question of opinion. Um, so, for example, with the coverage of the banking inquiry, the burning the bondholders debate has been reignited. And uh, uh, David McWilliams was on the radio yesterday saying, oh, the Irish officials just rolled over because we want to be loved, not feared. So we didn't put up the argument enough. When in actual fact, the IMF themselves really wanted to burn bondholders too, but the ECB bullied them just as much as they did the Irish government. And by omission... A really misleading picture of what happened was out there. And it's a very common picture that's been put out there. Well, I didn't hear that. But yeah. look, I, I, you know, I don't think, uh, I don't think politicians here uh, were prepared to spend billions of taxpayers' money to be loved by some officials uh, and, and have the opprobrium of the people who vote for them and employ them. I think that's, that's nonsense. The reason they did it was because the ECB threatened to pull the plug as they did in Cyprus and, and Greece. And that's what would have happened if the Irish side didn't go along. That was the reason. Like, I think that's pretty obvious. Okay, my producer is giving me devil looks if I do not wrap this programme now, so I'm afraid I will have to. So, Julian Marcia, Dan O'Brien and Eamon Delaney, many thanks for joining me today. And thanks to Ronan Bratnock and Aidan McKelvey who put the show together. Bobby Kerr is up next and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.